The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. Like the movie Tron, composer Wendy Carlos was always ahead of her time. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're going to download info on Tron, a movie by Walt Disney Productions from 1982, written and directed by Steven Lisberger, with a film score by Wendy Carlos. You know, a lot of times when we start looking at a movie for the first time, I'll begin with this overview of what was going on the year that the movie was released. I'll do things like read off fun facts about, say, 1985, and end with some of the year's biggest hit songs or biggest fads or biggest movies. In 1985's case, the biggest movie of the year was, of course, Back to the Future. So, let's talk about the biggest movies of 1982. According to Box Office Mojo, the top 10 movies were, from number 10 to number 1, Annie, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Poltergeist, 48 Hours, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Porky's, Rocky III, An Officer and a Gentleman, Tootsie, and, at number 1, not surprisingly, E.T. The Extraterrestrial. The movie that we're discussing in this episode, Tron, isn't even on this list. So... Why has it endured? Why is it such a cult classic, Tron? Why do movie and film score buffs like me still obsess over its details? I want to demonstrate two things over the course of this show, this episode. One, Tron was way ahead of its time. And two, Tron also has a tremendous spirit, a tremendous amount of heart. Trust me, the score written by composer Wendy Carlos ties into all of this. Tron was written and directed by Steven Lisberger, and it was truly his brainchild. His animation company, Lisberger Studios, which mostly produced animated commercial spots, began developing an idea for an independent feature film called Tron, which would feature beautiful backlit characters in a computer world. Here's a vintage interview of Lisberger discussing how he got the idea for Tron. For the first time, we computers are being used to create a fantasy world and a motion picture. In Tron, the line between imagination and reality disappears. The young writer and director of Tron is Steven Lisberger. Every one of us is in that computer somewhere, whether it's because of our driver's license or social security or income tax, but the fact is that there is a 
an alternate person that is an electrical person that is forming inside this electrical dimension. And then the question is, are you in control of that information or somebody else in control of it? When thinking about Tron, you sort of have to picture yourself inside a Pac-Man game. Picture yourself in there fighting for your own life. And the only way you can get out of that game is if you figure out how it works from the inside this time. The big difference is the game doesn't look the way it looks to you from this world as a little screen. This time it looks real. What happens in Tron is that the character Jeff Bridges plays, a uh, guy named Flynn, has invented these various video games and they've been taken away from him illegally by a, by a large computer company. I still do not understand why you want to break into the system. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. And in an effort to release the information from their computer files, he takes on their computer system. And in so doing, he gets pulled into the computer. Once he's in that computer, um, he gets sentenced to die as a, as a video game player by the master control program. Then pull yourself together. Get this clown trained. I want him in the games until he dies playing. Acknowledge. And the irony is that those video games are, are his creation and now his life depends on overcoming you know, his own creation. So here's a creative man discussing how each of us, each of us, all of us, has a digital double. Before we use the phrase avatar, we each have our own program of which we are the end user. We all have a digital version of ourselves living in the machine, uh, out there on the web, in the cloud. And if he felt that decades ago, imagine how true that notion is today. Now, I don't often start these with an overview of the plot to a film, because I, I assume that we all just know it. But in the case of Tron, I think it's warranted to really get into the details of what this movie is and what it's about. By the way, these are details that completely flew over my head as a kid, but hit me like a ton of bricks as an adult. So, here we go. In Tron... A computer programmer named Flynn, in the early 1980s, is a young go-getter at a big software company called Encom. He develops five video games while working at the company, just, you know, in his spare time while he's working on other programs at the real bulk of his work. He has colleagues, but none of them are quite as smart or talented as Flynn is, especially not Dillinger, played by actor David Warner, who ultimately steals Flynn's games and presents them as his own. So Dillinger skyrockets to the executive level as a result, and Flynn, of course, is somehow pushed out of the company. At the opening of the movie, Dillinger's running the company with the aid of his brainchild, a mainframe computer called the MCP, or Master Control Program, which, by the way, is constantly growing and gobbling up other programs, getting smarter and more efficient all the time, much to Dillinger's delight as it keeps him in power. Meanwhile, Flynn, now totally ousted, is running an arcade somewhere in town, and he tries regularly to hack into Encom's network, desperately looking for proof of the theft committed by Dillinger, as he watches kids pump 8 million quarters a month into the arcade games that he himself wrote, but no longer owns. Okay, are we following this so far? 
I mean, we, as a modern audience, we know software companies. We know Apple and Microsoft. We all have laptops, home PCs, smartphones, smart homes, car computers. We're on social media. We know today how things work. But remember, this came out in 1982. More on that later. Back to the story. So at the top of the movie, we're shown kids playing arcade games at the arcade. All right, give me room. Here we go. The screen zooms into the arcade cabinet, and suddenly, the light bike game grid envelops us. And we see real actors riding bikes in a wholly digital world. What's this game called? No, this is Lightside. <laughs> we're told immediately that there is a world within a world that will unfold over the course of this movie. Likewise, we see Flynn sitting at his home computer, furiously typing in commands to a program he wrote called Clue. Okay, Clue, tonight we check everything in the right-hand column. He's looking for information stored away in NCOM's memory bank somewhere. This is all very early internet days, by the way, connecting computer systems. That was still very cutting edge. Anyway, as he's typing, we suddenly cut to a computerized man with a gorgeous yellow backlit glow in the driver's seat of a red backlit tank, all visually stunning. And the actor looks just like Flynn. Both, of course, are played by Jeff Bridges. Flynn is having a conversation with Clue, essentially saying, find that file for me. Are you? Yes, sir. Clue, we don't have much time left to find that file. This is top priority. Yes, sir, I know, sir. This isn't just correcting my bank statement or phone bill problem again. This is a must. I understand, sir. Now, I wrote you. Yes, sir. I taught you everything I know about the system. Thank you, sir, but I'm not sure that... No buts, Clue. That's for users. Now, you're the best program that's ever been written. You're dogged and relentless, remember? Let me add him. That's the spirit. Now, keep that tank rolling, and I'll try to cover you from this end. Go. And the metaphor for us, the audience, is clear. This tank is a search program meant to hack into a computer mainframe. And he's doing so by skulking around computer trenches in a sleek tank. Do you think we can merge with this memory bit? Yes. Clue even has a sidekick, by the way, a floating orb named Bit, who only says yes or no. Quick sidebar on that. The smartphone that you have, that you carry in your pocket, that you may even be using to listen to this show, most likely contains gigabytes and gigabytes of storage. In other words, it has the capacity to store gigabytes of digital information. A gigabyte for our information is 1,000 megabytes, or megs, commonly known. A megabyte is 1,000 kilobytes, or K. A kilobyte is 1,000 bytes. A byte is like a digital word or piece of information that is made up of eight bits. So, zooming all the way down to the smallest nugget of what digital information actually is, a bit is how computers talk, using a language called binary. Binary, meaning two, is either a value of one or zero. It's like a switch, on or off, yes or no. Hold it right there. Yes. What do you mean, yes? Yes. And all you can say? No. Oh, anything else? Yes. Positive and negative, huh? You're a bit. Yes. 
Well, where's your program? Isn't he gonna miss you? I'm your program. Another mouth to feed. So in a genius inside joke, which nobody would have understood in 1982, bit can only speak in binary. Yes or no. That's what a bit is. All of this is in service to let us, the audience, know that we are inside the computer itself in this scene. That the digital world is its own reality. Anyway, back to the story. So Flynn, sitting at his home computer, is using Clue, his program that he wrote. That's right, Clue is a program and Flynn is a user. More on that later. He's using Clue to find information that he's not supposed to access. While sneaking around, Clue is, unfortunately, caught by flying machines called Recognizers, a kind of Norton antivirus for NCOM and the Master Control Program. We cut to Flynn at the computer console in the real world, and he sees that his hack was unsuccessful. Busted again. And that was my best program. Now, did we follow all of that? Probably, yes. You may even be thinking I'm leading too much by the nose right now, but... Imagine trying to follow that in 1982. Would we know what a program or app even is? Do we know what hackers even are? Wait, what software again? That's a new term. Maybe I'll go to the library and check out a book on what that all means. Because I asked my friends, they don't know. That's how it was in 82. But on with the story. Clue, Flynn's program, is interrogated by the MCP asking who his user is. Clue won't tell him. The MCP kills him or derezzes him as a result. But the MCP and Dillinger in the real world suspect that it's that nosy ex-employee, the brilliant and wronged Kevin Flynn. To take precautions then, Dillinger and the MCP agree to suspend high-level access, digital access, within the ENCOM system to all of its high-level employees or computer programmers. This, unfortunately for Dillinger and the MCP, includes another different talented engineer, the currently employed Alan Bradley, who happens to be working on this cybersecurity watchdog application, or program, that he calls Tron, which acts as a counterbalance to make sure that computer systems play nice with each other, or don't get too powerful. That includes being a watchdog to the MCP itself. Alan goes to see Dillinger, who explains, oh, I'm sorry, I had to cut off access for a few days because of hackers. But Alan is dating Laura, another co-worker who happens to be Flynn's ex-girlfriend, who has a sneaking suspicion that it's probably Flynn who's the hacker. Meanwhile, Dillinger and the MCP suspect the same thing as well. In a brief exchange, the MCP, who talks to Dillinger in this eerie, godlike, robotic voice, reprimands Dillinger over Alan's Tron program. The MCP tells Dillinger of its plans to swallow up and assimilate all of the Pentagon's computer systems within the following week, and then the Kremlin right afterwards. Ooh, 1982 Cold War topical reference. When Dillinger fears that the MCP is too powerful, the MCP blackmails Dillinger by saying it'll leak his theft of Flynn's games to the Times newspaper. That's right, the machine is sentient now. Ah, what a tangled web we weave. <laughs> web, see what I did there? Okay, we haven't even gotten to Alan and Laura warning Flynn that Dillinger knows, and Flynn saying, hey, break me in and I'll find the file, and I'll get you access so you can keep working on the Tron program, Alan. After all, MCP is corrupt, 
So then they break in and Flynn sits at a terminal that, oh, happens to be next to this experimental laser that Laura is working on that then takes him from the real world and digitizes him, placing him in the MCP mainframe. We haven't even gotten that far. But let me ask you again. If you're an average audience in 1982, are, are, are you following this? Here's my take on it. You could have been a Harvard or Oxford PhD candidate, a brain surgeon, or rocket scientist, or Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, and still not follow this movie in 1982. Because this was not common knowledge back then. The world has changed so drastically since 82, and I dare say Tron has actually aged really well as a result. But when this movie came out, critics praised its visuals at best and dismissed its story and character outright as fluff at worst. But were they right to do so? Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film four out of four stars and described the film as a dazzling movie from Walt Disney in which computers have been used to make themselves romantic and glamorous. Here's a technological sound and light show that is sensational and brainy, stylish and fun, end quote. However, near the end of his review, he noted, in a positive tone, this is an almost wholly technological movie. Although it's populated by actors who are engaging, it's not really a movie about human nature. Like Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, but much more so, this movie is a machine to dazzle and delight us, end quote. InfoWorld's Deborah Wise was impressed also, but she wrote that, quote, it is hard to believe the characters acted out the scenes on a darkened soundstage. We see characters throwing illuminated frisbees, driving light cycles on a video game grid, playing a dangerous version of Hyalai, and zapping numerous fluorescent tanks in arcade game-type mazes. It's exciting, it's fun, and it's just what video game fans and anyone with a spirit of adventure will love, despite plot weaknesses, end quote. And then there's Variety. Variety did not like the film and said in its review, quote, Tron is loaded with visual delights but falls way short of the mark in story and viewer involvement. Screenwriter-director Steven Lisberger has adequately marshaled a huge force of technicians to deliver the dazzle, but even kids, and specifically computer game geeks, will have a difficult time getting hooked on the situations, end quote. All right, I'm here to say that this movie was woefully misunderstood by the critics. In my humble opinion, this movie isn't short on plot. It isn't weak. It's just that it's way ahead of its time, as I said at the top, and filled with metaphors that we just weren't ready for. It didn't make a lot of sense at the time to a lot of people. But the movie is filled with heart. Because what's interesting about Tron isn't just the on-screen technical realization of a world within a world. I mean, that's really cool and visually stunning and groundbreaking and technically ahead of its time, etc. But ultimately, Tron is a classic story of good versus evil, right versus wrong. And as corny as it might sound to some of you, it's about faith in a higher power or existence, hope for a better future, and love for fellow programs. There is a metaphysical and spiritual side to Tron that is almost completely overshadowed by its technical achievement and incredible style. Because you see, I haven't even gotten to the real plot of the movie yet. The real plot is that the MCP is this oppressive, all-powerful evil force in the digital world, just like a ruthless tyrant or Caesar that is eating up and absorbing programs that it finds useful into its own empire 
and taking those that it has no use for and having them fight like gladiators to the death on the game grid. Especially if they hold a fanatical belief for their gods, these so-called users, which is basically us in the real world. There is no god but Caesar. Meanwhile, in order to protect itself from a hacker in the real world, the MCP tries to digitize Flynn with that laser and dispose of him on the game grid, and it totally backfires. Flynn is like an all-powerful messianic figure in the digital world and runs into Tron, Ellen's program, realizes that they have aligned interests, and they escape the game grid together. All digital heck breaks loose. They try to get Tron to an I.O. tower, (laughs) the metaphors in this movie, an I.O. or input-output tower, their version of a USB or universal serial bus port or Ethernet, Thunderbolt, whatever so they can communicate with the heavens or the users. So they try to get him to an I.O. tower in order to have the information needed to take down the MCP. The whole thing ends in this climactic battle where Tron and Flynn work together to destroy the MCP. Dillinger's exposed as a thief and a fraud once the information is leaked, and Flynn ends up running the company. They all live happily ever after. The real plot of Tron, as you can hear from the end of my plot synopsis, is filled with heart and real metaphysical, political, and human issues. Spiritual belief. A struggle for freedom from oppression. This is great artistic storytelling, set against a highly, highly advanced background. Tron is a technological marvel of a movie. Tron breaks barriers of possibility. Tron is innovative, pioneering. It introduced an electric reality to the world when the world didn't know much about that. Tron is equal parts technical prowess and beautiful artistry on display. After the break, I'm going to repeat that last statement again, but I'm going to replace the word Tron with the name Wendy Carlos. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Wendy Carlos is a technological marvel of a composer. She breaks barriers of possibility. Wendy Carlos is innovative, pioneering. She introduced an electronic reality to the world when the world didn't know much about that. She is equal parts technical prowess and beautiful artistry on display. Wendy Carlos is known mostly for her electronic music and film scores. Born and raised in Rhode Island, she attended Brown University and studied physics and music. Quite an impressive combination. In 1962, she moved to New York City to study composition at Columbia University, where she became heavily involved with electronic music and even contributed to the development of the Moog synthesizer, developed by the legendary late Robert Moog, who I had the pleasure of meeting years ago. Anyway, the Moog is an analog synth that would play a tremendous role in her music, including the score for Tron. Several years after she was at Columbia University, she played some of her electronic compositions to her future collaborating partner, Rachel Elkind, and the standout was a rendition of two-part invention in F major by Johann Sebastian Bach. Eventually, this led to the creation of an all-synth electronic album of Bach pieces called Switched on Bach, which was released in 1968. For our information, Switched on Bach peaked on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart at number 10 and topped its classical album chart from 1969 
1972. The album had sold over one million copies by June 1974, and in 1986 became the second classical album in history to be certified platinum by the RIAA. In 1970, that album won three Grammy Awards, Best Classical Album, Best Classical Performance, and Best Engineered Classical Recording. According to a 1999 interview with Carol Wright, Carlos didn't make Switched on Bach to regenerate interest in Bach, but she did it, quote, with the intention of using the novel technology to make appealing music you could really listen to, not ugly music being produced by avant-garde musicians around the same time, end quote. Let's listen to some of the music that was being created mid-20th century by famous composers, such as the 1961 Milton Babbitt piece, Composition for Synthesizer. Now, let's listen to a track from Wendy Carlos's all-electronic, all-synth version of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 3. Beautifully done, very listenable, very engaging, and like Bach, lively, filled with heart, and is still cutting edge to this day as nothing quite like it exists from that era or since. In Tron, something emerges in Wendy Carlos's electronic music that made me a huge fan of hers. This combination of cutting edge sounds, 20th century harmony, but also an approachable diatonic melody that cuts through all of the technology and conveys a very spiritual side to Tron, just like the movie itself. To illustrate, I want to play a piece of dissonant synth music from the game grid. Now, I want to play the love theme from Tron. This is from the same score. One of the reasons that I find Wendy Carlos to be such a compelling artist, beyond the fact that she's a woman, a trans woman in a field that is dominated by men, is that she has a physicist's approach to her art. She admires Carl Sagan. She is a humanist and realist. She fully embraces technology and shares her knowledge of tech via MIDI files and articles freely on her website, 
She rolls up her sleeves and she gets into every last technical detail with what seems to be the opposite of fear. There's a, a joy, a sense of discovery in her technical work. Heck, even her liner notes from the Tron soundtrack release focus mainly on technical restoration and recording details rather than talking about characters or storytelling details. Almost like those are a given, you know? She's a pioneer. She is the original synth. Music synthesis, a field that she helped create, owes her an unpayable debt because of this. Yet her traditional melodic sense and harmony also can stir emotions of love, a spiritual sense, and a metaphysical awe that seems to be in the movie Tron. So like the movie itself, Wendy Carlos shows us this dual strength as a composer. Let's break down this, this main melody here. First of all, there are so many wonderful harmonic and dissonant sounds in Tron, but when you get to this main theme, you have a very simple rise up to a major third, outlining a bright type of major sound. But it's set against not a major chord, but an augmented chord. That's that same sound that John Williams used to convey the mystery or awe of outer space and of Princess Leia, the divine in the universe. Funny enough, it's actually the opposite direction of a Lydian sound. That one rises to the fifth, and this one falls to the fifth. As if we reach beyond and then settle back into our comfort zone after traveling into the unknown. It's a wonderful sound. But I want to just play this melody, and I want us to notice a couple of things. Notice the rising and falling of the melody. It goes up, and it comes back down. It tries to go up again and goes down even further. Then listen for what's called a modulation. <laughs> By the way, that just occurred to me. So, modulation, uh, you know, when early internet used to use phone lines and uh, what we called modems in order to communicate information. And it did this. Uh, a, a modem was literally sending a pulse of binary. And the way it would do it, modem actually stands for modulation, demodulation, modem, modulation, demodulation. Um, so that's funny. That's kind of a nice little poetic nod back to um, how information was communicated digitally back in 1982. But anyway, listen for this musical modulation, which is when you move from one key center to another key center or tonal center. We start in one place, and through a series of modulations, we go to a higher plane. Let's take a listen. Here's the first statement. And then it falls. Here's the statement again, not as strong. And retreats down even further. But then it gathers strength. And eventually emerges and breaks through to the heavens. And here's the main melody again. Higher and stronger than before. Great melodies tell great stories. That is the spiritual nature 
of Tron. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. The movie Tron is a unique combination of digital effects and old-school analog film techniques, compositing so many layers of film together to create a unique look, a very painstaking and analog process. But put together, you have this totally unique, groundbreaking blend of digital and analog imagery, and it creates something we had never seen before. Once again, Wendy Carlos and her score for Tron mirror the production of the movie itself. Here's a quote from the liner notes of the 2001 soundtrack release of Tron from Wendy Carlos. Quote, Usually a composer is asked to provide initial ideas and themes to the producer, director, and music supervisor so that a general agreement on the appropriate style and approach can be found early in the production. It's now common to use synthesis for musical sketches. We were among the first to use those new tools. And I composed quite a few temp tracks using modular Moog and Polymoog analog synthesizers, and also the pioneering GDS digital synth, a lot of wild organic sounds on the final score from that. Then I put the electronic media all aside and began working with traditional pencil on score paper. Neat. Disciplined and efficient, end quote. In 1982, the analog pencil-on-paper tradition was a tried-and-true film scoring method. Heck, even John Williams uses pencil and paper to this very day. And in 1982, the digital tools that were available were in their infancy. And just like the filmmakers who had to wait 10 minutes for every frame of film to be digitized or scanned, Carlos and team had to invent methods of working digitally, Here's another Carlos quote from the liner notes. Quote, We pioneered several computer systems to assist in synchronizing every musical nuance. End quote. So in Tron, what you're seeing and what you're hearing on screen represents a tremendous technical breakthrough. One that flew over many heads in 1982, but one that took a tremendous amount of heart and vision to achieve. The story of Tron, its creation, and the creation of its film score mirror the technology versus human spirit narrative of the film itself. And in both the real world and in the virtual world, Wendy Carlos's score for Tron, its groundbreaking hybrid of synth and full orchestra, its dissonant, almost Stravinsky-esque harmonies, combined with its soaring melodies, capture this duality perfectly. On the next episode, we'll discuss specific cues and moments from Tron, and break down their timbres and influences, and we'll talk about how music is used in the film, and also when the filmmakers decided to hold back. All of this and so much more on The Soundtrack Show. Thank you 